dividends derived by an Australian company from a non-portfolio subsidiary, so a subsidiary where it holds greater than 10%, a non-assessable, non-exempt income. So once those dividends are paid, they're not subject to further income tax in Australia at the company level. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 285 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What are the tax implications when your clients expand their business overseas? This is what Clint Harding of Arnablock Liebler in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. If we're looking at how an Australian business should expand overseas, Australia has a lot of different regimes, if you go back to the policy basis for a lot of our law around capital export neutrality. So a lot of our system, on the one hand, is designed not to tax Australian businesses conducting business overseas more harshly than local businesses are in those jurisdictions, because obviously that's a competitive disadvantage. If, if, if we want, if you step back and you say it's a good thing that Australia encourages its business its businesses to expand overseas and increase their footprint, then you don't want a reason for them not to do that being because they're taxed more punitively in Australia for doing so. So that's one policy setting. The other policy setting is obviously we don't want people racking up and deferring taxable profits in offshore jurisdictions as a tax dodge. And so you get rules like the CFC rules that look at passive income and things like that. So there's a few things from a policy perspective that are interesting in the way that Australia goes about taxing businesses that are conducting uh, overseas operations. Some of the other policy settings like our participation exemptions for dividends and capital gains of disposals of shares and foreign subsidiaries and things like that. So again, a lot of those regimes are designed to put it on an equal playing field for, for Australian companies. So so let's say it's an e-commerce company and they start just selling a few products in, let's say, New Zealand, because New Zealand is very often the first country that an Australian business expands into. So let's say they start selling a few products online into New Zealand. My understanding is that at the start, there are no tax consequences as long as they don't sell more than $60,000 of New Zealand dollars, I have to stress it's New Zealand dollars, as long as they stay below the 60,000 New Zealand dollar threshold in New Zealand, they are not subject to GST, so they don't have to register for GST in New Zealand. They don't obviously don't have a permanent establishment in New Zealand. So there are basically no tax consequences as with respect to New Zealand as they slowly start expanding into New Zealand, meaning everything is taxed in Australia and the export is GST free and the profit is taxed in Australia and there's nothing they need to do with respect to tax in, in New Zealand. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, I am a New Zealander, but I'm no longer, uh, it's been a very long time since I practiced tax law there, but th that's right. I mean, the question from a New Zealand perspective is is what, what tax is payable on that and generally, like Australia has done with digital imports and things like that. There's countries are scrambling to try and collect GST because obviously it gives Australians um, a bit of a foot up if they don't have to charge GST on selling goods in New Zealand where New Zealand companies do. So New Zealand, like Australia, will be looking primarily to GST as the means by which of collecting some form of tax from offshore vendors. But as you say, there are registration thresholds. And if they don't, if they don't do that, then 
I don't know, you'd, you'd want to check that with a New Zealand advisor, whether there's anything, any quirks to that system that, that yes. might make a difference. But but yeah. prima facie, that threshold is what you need to register for GST in New Zealand. Yeah. So The general rule is basically New Zealanders can sell in Australia without having to register for GST as long as they don't sell more than 75,000 Australian dollars yeah. in Australia. The same principle works the other way around, except that the threshold is 60,000 New Zealand dollars. So as long yeah. as our, uh, let's say it's John again, and he runs a small e-commerce business, as long as John doesn't sell product of more than 60,000 New Zealand dollars in New Zealand, he's fine. He doesn't need to do anything in New Zealand. Okay. Um, I, I'm now, just not sure without having looked at it, whether there's anything quirky in those sort of GST, okay. those new GST rules that came in that might turn that threshold off because they sort of impose that obligation to collect GST on or they try to do it on the electronic distribution platform so like eBay and that they look primarily to those organisations to collect the GST on behalf of foreign vendors selling into to New Zealand I'm just not quite sure how that interacts yeah. with the normal registration thresholds but that's a very good point actually that's a very good point. Distribution platforms, of course, do assume the uh, role of the um, tax collector. They do in Australia. I'm, I, again, I'm not sure what happens in New Zealand. Yeah. So let's assume John doesn't sell through a distribution, electronic distribution platform, but sells directly through his website. Yeah. And then assuming there are no other quirks, then... He doesn't have to do anything with respect to New Zealand until he hits the 60,000. But now his business expands and he has some stock and also a person who works on commission in New Zealand who fulfills the orders in, in New Zealand. From what stage on would we would that qualify as a permanent establishment? Uh, again, that's a question in New Zealand law, which I can't comment on. We're a question of how New Zealand defines permanent establishment, but there is obviously a, a tax treaty between Australia and New Zealand that talks about uh, PEs. And so broadly speaking, when you're looking at whether or not something is going to be a PE, and this is, I, I can speak to sort of what the OECD has said about that and what the treaties say about it. Uh, all treaties are slightly different but from treaty to treaty, but for the most part, you look at whether or not you have a fixed place of business and a sufficient temporal nexus with that jurisdiction. So, for example, I would have thought if John is employing someone even on a part-time basis and they're located in New Zealand, generally having an employee located in a foreign jurisdiction will be enough to give you a permanent establishment. I see. And even if that is not an employee but just works on commission, would that… Okay, so that's a, that's a whole different conversation. So then the rules generally distinguish between employees and contractors and then there's a separate discussion with contractors as to whether or not someone's an independent contractor or a dependent contractor and that will look at things like whether or not they work for other people whether or not they have the authority to execute contracts on behalf of john in new zealand or or something less than that and so there's degrees of nuance in any discussion around what constitutes a PE and what doesn't. Do you mind if I just dwell, dwell into that? Let's say sure. it's let's say it's just uh, somebody who does it part-time, doesn't he basically just fulfills the order. There is no contract or anything they sign on behalf of the Australian company. It's just that they see in Shopify that there are three orders for for soccer boots or whatever it is he's selling, three orders for soccer boots, so they pack, pack them into a into a parcel and send them off and for that they get some commission. Would they count as an independent or a dependent contractor if they're just paid a commission? Let me check my treaty. We're an enterprise of a contract state performs services in the other contracting state for a period exceeding 183 days in any 12-month period. 
carries on activities, substantial equipment, directs or controls the manner in which those services are performed by the individual, duration of the activities. It probably would be a dependent contractor because it's not like that the, uh, the, the guy who fulfills the orders and sends out the parcels would be independent. Well, I mean, dependent generally – You'd have to go back and check because this is all treaty. Again, I don't know what New Zealand actually says about this domestically, but if you look at paragraph eight of article, what am I in article five, which is the PE article in the New Zealand treaty, it talks about um, where a person other than, so this is dependent agents, where a person other than an agent of independent status to whom paragraph nine applies. So that's that distinction I was talking about between a dependent and independent agent, but where someone is a dependent agent is acting on behalf of an enterprise and has and habitually exercises in New Zealand an authority to substantially negotiate or conclude contracts. So that's what we've talked about. So no, or manufactures or processes in a contracting state for the enterprise goods, manufactures or processes in a contracting state for the enterprise goods or merchandise belonging to the enterprise then the enterprise should be deemed to have a permanent establishment. So that's an interesting question of what depends on the, the function and the role that that contractor is paying in, in New Zealand. If we go to Article 9, which talks about independent contractors or con agent of independent status, and it says an enterprise shall not be deemed to have a permanent establishment in a contracting state, so it won't be deemed to have a PE in New Zealand, merely because it carries on business in New Zealand through a person who is a broker, general commission agent, or any other agent of an independent status, provided that such persons are acting in the ordinary course of their business as such a broker. So that one of the key requirements there is you would look at if that person in New Zealand doesn't do those things for anyone other than our Australian supplier, then you may fall out, you may not be in an agent of independent status and then you're back into dependent and you've got to work through that, yes. that aspect of it. Okay, so as soon as you have a de dependent contractor in the country, you have you're deemed to have a PE. As long as anybody who's working for you is deemed to be an independent contractor, you don't have a PE. And the problem is, of course, oh, that yeah, yeah, I, th I think it, that's simplifying it. You you very much need to to delve okay. into that, and it, 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 there's a lot of nuances in, okay. in that analysis, but. Let's okay, go with good. that so for the time yeah. being. Okay. So let me say it differently. As soon as you have people or stock yeah. on the ground, you run a risk of having a permanent establishment in New Zealand or in the country you're talking about. Yeah. But let's say New Zealand, you run a high risk of having a PE in New Zealand. And if you have a PE in New Zealand, then you need to register for income tax and you just start paying income tax. And then that's a whole different story and a yeah. huge obligation. Well, I mean, it. PEs are hard and, and, and often we get asked whether you should set up a company or, or just run through a branch or a PE and one, one of the one of the issues and the again the OECD has done a lot of work about this there's still plenty of commentary being written about it and there will invariably be some cases coming before courts on it is around what the treaties say if you're in a treaty jurisdiction so let's in, in New Zealand is what the treaty says so if you look at article business profits article which is article 7 so it says the profits of an enterprise and I'll substitute the jurisdictions in so the profits of an enterprise of Australia shall be taxable only in Australia unless that enterprise carries on business in New Zealand through a permanent establishment situated therein if that enterprise carries on business in New Zealand the profits may be taxed in New Zealand but only so much of them as is attributable to that piece. So that brings into a whole question about attribution. So 
what it, what what level of profit should be attributed to the, the activities of that person in New Zealand. It's not may not all be all of it. So it's a supply chain type analysis, almost a transfer pricing analysis. That yeah, exactly. If, if all this person is doing is packaging up goods and selling them, but our mate John in, in Australia has done all the work. He's sourced it. He's got the website selling it. He's doing all the sales activities. He's procuring everything. How much of the profit, the overall profit that he makes on the sale of a widget should be attributed to the activities of the person who is a PE of his in Australia? And so that then gets you into sort of transfer pricing land and potentially needing to work out what a reasonable amount of profit is for those purposes. And obviously, Australia and New Zealand then may have different views on what that is. New Zealand will obviously want as much profit to be attributed to those activities as possible because that's how they collect their tax. So, But I can imagine transfer pricing is expensive. The moment you step onto transfer pricing ground, you need advice, you need lawyers behind you to uh, to defend your profit allocations within within the structure you have. I can imagine that's very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, the ATO has done a lot of work on simplified transfer pricing documentation and, and trying to they obviously appreciate that is. And obviously, if you're an individual trader trading in New Zealand, <laughs> um, you're probably not high. You're not, you're not one of the big multinationals that are gaming or potentially um, costing Australia hundreds of millions of dollars. So there is a happy medium. And as I said, there's, there's guidance out there the ATO has on sort of simplified transfer pricing documents. The, the other option would be once you get to that point, and you've also got to get employment advice and regulatory advice in New Zealand if you start relying on the services of someone, what, what are your obligations in New Zealand? If, if Are they really a contractor? I mean, in Australia, we have contractor versus employee disputes all the time. It's a really hard threshold and we have different definitions of employee for income tax, for payroll tax, for superannuation. It gets hard. So you might want to get New Zealand advice as to whether or not the guy you're employing or the girl you're employing in New Zealand might actually be your employee. And if, if you are then um, required, and so sometimes people, and if they're out representing, it goes beyond sort of the distribution aspect you've done, but often people will send out, have a sales and marketing function or have someone on the ground in a foreign jurisdiction doing sort of preparatory, what we call preparatory or auxiliary activities such as pre-sales and marketing. If you're going to do that, then you might want to think about is, do, at what point in time do you establish an entity in New Zealand to sort of formalise that and have, have that entity. Quite often, it's easier to be an employer if you have an entity in that jurisdiction as employer rather than register as a non-resident employer and do it all that way so yeah so because that's basically now the the third step after john has established a permanent establishment in new zealand let's assume it wasn't his intention but he employed somebody as a contractor be it independent or dependent and he put stock on the ground in new zealand so inadvertently he created a permanent establishment so now the alternative is to register a new zealand company that is a subsidiary of the Australian company and then to trade through the New Zealand company. Yeah, or, or he can continue just to have a branch or a, a PE doesn't need to um, establish a company. As I say, that's something often people do because you can then formalise, sort of breaks that question around attribution of profits and potentially forestall difficulties with discussions with tax authorities in both countries over what the correct amount of profits to attribute in those circumstances are. But, but let's assume John incorporates a company, then he will have a company deriving New Zealand profit. And so that company in New Zealand will need to work out how much New Zealand tax it pays, right? 
it will presumably, I mean, you end up in the same place because that company presumably in order to sell that product is going to have to buy the product off the Australian entity. Um, and so you end up in a sort of similar transfer pricing world anyway, even if he sets up a company as opposed to, to doing it through a branch. Yes, exactly. And then we have the company and then when dividends are repatriated or when profits are repatriated to Australia, then is there withholding tax or is there no withholding tax because it's from it's from company to company? No, no, I think New Zealand, let me check. Last I checked, New Zealand imposes withholding tax on dividends. I suspect the treaty might, let's, I'll roll the dice and I'll say 5%, but I might be spectacularly wrong. So let me check. Dividends, 5% if you hold more than, oh, 5% if the beneficial owner of those dividends is a company which holds directly at least 10% of the voting company in the New Zealand company. So if John's got a holding company in Australia that, holds the shares in the New Zealand company or 100% of those shares, it might be 5%, otherwise 15 So, and I think, I don't think, I think New Zealand imposes withholding tax again. We'd have to check that, but my, the later, my understanding is they do. So you're going to have all of those issues with working through the FIDO provisions. and Exactly. Then we are back to the same scenario as we did before when John was investing in shares in the US, that the uh, company receives a FIDO for the 5% or 15% of withholding tax. But yep. when it is then distributed through as a dividend yep. to the shareholders, then you have withholding tax leakage because the franking credits don't come for the yep. uh, withholding tax. And then... Quite often on dividend statements, it lists New Zealand franking credits. That is only if you are a New Zealand resident and then you can claim those New Zealand franking credits in your New Zealand tax return. Right? Yeah, so, so that's been talked about for a long time as sort of mutual recognition. I mean, Australia and New Zealand are probably two of only maybe four countries in the world that have an imputation system. So we're complete outliers in that regard. And it has been talked about for a long time trying to get to a point where there's mutual recognition of imputation credits between Australia and New Zealand. Um, that hasn't gone anywhere. So at, at, at this stage, you still can't, Australians can't claim the benefit of New Zealand imputation credits on on dividends they've got. Um, yeah. There are some rules that deal with um, what they call the triangular imputation system, but it doesn't go as far as I'd have to refresh my um memory as to what that does but it's not what what you're talking about is the concept of mutual recognition so i think certain new zealand companies can choose to enter the new the australian imputation system and generate australian franking credits where the new zealand company pays australia australian income tax or something like that there's yes, there's some very was, specific rules around that yeah that was my next question because apparently there is a setup you can do where the company doesn't pay any new zealand tax i think that's right i think that's that the special trans tasman imputation rules i was talking about but i think that's got to be elected into by the new zealand company i think but yeah, I haven't looked at that for a long time, but there, there are certain tweaks to that. I see. And so just very roughly, it basically means the company doesn't pay any income tax in New Zealand and just pays it in Australia. It really surprises. I see. And then it also works the other way around. You can elect this for a New Zealand company, hence New Zealand loses its tax income. No, I think you've got to be a bit careful. I don't think it impacts at all on sort of the, the primary taxing obligations of that company. I think it's just a way, because I think one of the requirements in order to generate a franking credit is they have to be an Australian company. And so I think what it does is just allow New Zealand companies that are already paying Australian income tax 
to generate franking credits that can then be passed to Australian shareholders. Okay. So to basically, when you opt into this, you can claim a franking credit for the New Zealand tax you pay? No, no. I, th I think if, if, for example, you had a New Zealand company that paid $10 of New Zealand income tax and $5 of Australian income tax and it elected into this regime, it would effectively allow that New Zealand company to attach both imputation credits and franking credits to a dividend. Obviously, the Australian, an Australian shareholder of that company wouldn't get any benefit from the New Zealand imputation credits that are attached, but it would be able to utilise the, the franking credit on the Australian portion of it. You lost me there. Because why would the New Zealand company pay any Australian tax? It might have Australian sourced income. It might have oh, okay. um, operations in Australia. I mean, a lot of Australia, okay. a lot of New Zealand companies do stuff in Australia and may uh, would have a branch or potentially other. Uh, it's not, as I say, it's not very common. I've looked at it once in maybe 18 years, so I don't really think there's that many companies around that do it. Okay, so if you put that, we put that aside. So the bottom line is really, it sounds very innocent to our. Uh, you know, I don't want to pay all this DHL shipping fees. I just put some stock onto the ground in New Zealand, for example, and then I just have somebody to fulfill the shipments. It sounds very harmless, but it actually comes with a huge tax consequences because you might create an, a permanent establishment that way. And then it means that you have to pay income tax in New Zealand. And then when you try to repatriate the profits from that permanent establishment or company, you don't receive eventually you don't receive a franking credit for those payments you make, the withholding tax you pay. Yeah, that's if it's through companies. Again, if you're a sole trader in Australia and you start doing it in New Zealand, even if you do have a end up with some sort of permanent establishment, you should, uh, if you if that's your tax liability in New Zealand and you have to register as a foreign entity carrying on business there and lodge a return, then again, you, you'll get a, you should get a FITO for any income tax you pay in New Zealand. That's very good that you mentioned that again. So it basically means that if John wants to have stock on the ground in New Zealand, he should do that as an individual and trade in New Zealand as an individual, then he can claim the FITO in his in his individual tax return. Yeah, it takes us back to our first discussion. That, but, but I mean, there's other, other reasons you might want to use a company. You might, generally, you don't want to be, you might not, for liability reasons, want to be running a business in New Zealand in your own name. If you're shipping stuff and something happens and you get sued for, I don't know, whatever, someone getting sick from one of your products, you might yeah. want a company anyway. So then and the don't, trust, don't forget, if, trust if you're would a, be the solution because trust, the trust then gets it, the FITO yeah, and you have a, a corporate trustee. But a, but, a, but a trust's a pain in the neck because all the income has to get distributed out. So if you're growing a business, the benefit of having a company is obviously you can retain profits in a company and redeploy them or reinvest them. And so every time… So you use a bucket company. In yeah, Australia. you could do, could do, but then that bucket company's got to put money back into the trust, and then if the trust's carrying on the business, how do you run the financing as between the bucket company and the trust? So, and don't forget, also companies get the benefit of seven six eight A, so you you get a tax deferral through deriving dividends for an Australian company if you can benefit from seven six eight A because they they're non assessable, non ex exempt income when they hit Australia. So if you're looking at New Zealand and that 5% withholding, it's only 5% withholding, maybe the deferral benefit, if you're not needing to extract cash out of that company and you're in a growth phase and you want to redeploy it, maybe that deferral benefit from not having any further Australian tax to pay outweighs the, the slight leakage on the, frank, uh, the withholding tax leakage. Can you just quickly fill me in on the 76AA? You mentioned this before. So it used to be called 20, well, I think it's 23AJ. 23AJ yeah. it used to be. They rewrote that. So it's now 768A in the 19, okay. 1997 Act. But effectively what that 
says is non-portfolio dividends derived by an Australian company, various tweaks so that you can sometimes do it on a look-through basis if it's a partnership or a trust, but let's assume for simplicity we're talking companies. Companies can dividends derived by an Australian company from a non-portfolio subsidiary, so a subsidiary where it holds greater than 10%, uh, a non-assessable, non-exempt income. So once they hit New Zealand, uh, once those dividends are paid, they're not subject to further income tax in Australia at the company level. Okay, so let's and, say John. And, and why I say why I describe that as a deferral because eventually, when those profits come out to an Australian shareholder, they'll be unfranked. So you're going to have to pay top up tax. But if you don't want to take them out of the company and, and reinvest them, then that, as I say, there's a deferral benefit to that. Okay, so let's say John goes for a company in New Zealand. When the New Zealand company pays dividends to John's Australian company, yep. then those dividends are NANA based on the old 23AG and now yep. the new 76AA. They are NANA, so that means the company doesn't pay any top-up tax in Australia. Yep. The only thing that means is that if you ever, if John ever wanted to distribute those profits out of the company to himself as the shareholder, then of course there would be 47% top-up tax. Correct, because they're, they're effectively unfranked. Okay. <laughs> There you go. Got a, between our accents, and I don't know that anyone will be able to tell if it's 23AJ and G and <laughs> but the correct sections, it, it used to be 23AJ, J for John and is now 768A subdivision 768A for Alpha. Yes, 23. And then you've, yeah. that talks about the dividends. The other point you need to think about whenever you're talking about overseas activities is what happens on a liquidation or an exit. So what happens when you sell that? What happens with capital gains tax? Is there any capital gains tax payable in a foreign jurisdiction on a, an Australian entity disposing of those shares? What happens with foreign tax? You've got the Burton decision on FITOs that basically said the poor Australian that sold um, sold shares in a US company and paid US capital gains tax on that could only get a FITO for half of that US tax paid because of the way Australia's CGT discount rules work. So it's a really fascinating and I think wrong policy outcome on that. Welcome back. Sorry, I was a bit deaf there. It used to be section 23AJ, ITAA 36, and it is now section 76AA, ITAA 97. So 76AA, ITAA 97, making the distributions from your overseas company to your Australian company non-accessible, non-exempt, if the Australian company holds at least 10% in the overseas entity. In the next episode, episode 286, Mike Reddy of New Zealand Tax Accountants will talk about the tax implications when you expand into New Zealand. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.